if you ran a decent ad and they dialed the 800 number, odds are we wouldn't get the sale because we had a proven script for every single one of 1,500 corporate clients. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am beyond elated for today's guest. And I can't wait for him to share his stories and experience with you. Ben Gay III has been called a living legend in the sales world. After 50 plus years of professional selling, he has been the number one salesperson in every organization where he's worked. At the age of 25, he was president of what was then the world's largest direct sales and network marketing company, having personally been trained by fellow sales legends such as J. Douglas Edwards, Dr. Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, William Penn Patrick, Zig Ziglar, and many other sales giants. One of the most famous, popular, and powerful sales trainers in the world, Ben now writes, publishes, and produces The Closers, a series of books audios, videos, newsletters, and teletrainings, as well as live seminars, which is considered the foundation of professional selling. Ben was the founder and is the current executive director of the National Association of Professional Salespeople. And he and his lovely wife, Gigi, live near Lake Tahoe in the little California town of Placerville, where the California gold rush began. I love little facts like that added into these bios. Ben, it is an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to The Daily Helping. Thank you, doctor. My pleasure to be here. Been looking forward to it. We set it up quite some time ago, so I've really been uh, excited about it. You know, it's so exciting to me because I, I, as I was reading through that bio, I thought of this book called the uh, The Legend of the Ancient Masters, which was actually this guy that happened to be a contemporary of some of the most unbelievable painters of the Renaissance, you know, Michelangelo and Da Vinci and, and such. And as I'm reading that list, as I read that list of these names, what an unbelievable opportunity to be exposed to and to learn from those people. So I want to just start at the beginning. How did you get on the path of sales and what led you to start getting connected with some of those amazing mentors? Well, I'll go through the early part quickly. Uh, I was raised, born and raised in a family of salespeople and entrepreneurs, business owners. And I was raised two blocks out the front gate of East Lake Country Club, Bobby Jones Home Course. And uh, uh, so I, I knew, if only by sitting there being quiet, uh, I knew the chairman of the board of Coca-Cola and uh, Home Depot and virtually every business leader in Atlanta and any company that had even a regional office in Atlanta, their top people were members of East Lake. 
So I, I grew up around it. I call it uh, accent of zip code. I was, I was born and raised in the right zip code. So I didn't know any better. My comfort zone was sort of set high. My first sales contest that I remember winning uh, was selling Krispy Kreme donuts, which is a nectar of the gods, one of the major food groups in the southeastern <laughs> United States. And uh, I won a Columbia, bright red Columbia bicycle selling donuts door to door. And I was sort of hooked. So off I went. I ran a lawn mowing service. My father, I didn't like physical labor. So my father taught me how to sell the job, inspect the job, have my friends do the job and split the money. And he taught me a little script that doubled what we were able to charge. We didn't charge. They paid voluntarily, but it doubled what I would have gotten. So after splitting, I wound up the same amount of money. The kids that were working for me had the same amount of money they would have had if they had the nerve to ask for the job. And I had 20, 25 kids working for me at any given time in the Atlanta, Georgia growing season. So that was selling. Uh, I only mowed lawns when somebody got so sick they couldn't. <laughs> it wasn't my desire to mow a lawn. And so I, I progressed on. And then I got married to a lovely young lady who uh, was going to nursing school. And I discovered that working for my father, hoping to inherit the business someday, that was my ulterior motive, wasn't going to pay the bills and put her through nurse, nursing school. So one day, September 15, 1965, a Wednesday, I opened the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and looked in the help wanted ads. Uh, there was literally nothing I was qualified to do. I was a high school graduate, barely having been thrown out of two high schools. And uh, there was nothing I could do. I mean, even when he got down into things didn't require a great education, plumber, etc. Uh, I did not do that. And uh, so I, as I was about to throw the paper in the trash can in disgust, I saw something that said business opportunities. And so I thought, I wonder what that is. I never heard the term before. And it said, this little ad said, if you want, if you know anything about marketing plans and want to make more money, dial this number. Well, I need to make more money. I didn't know what a marketing plan was, but I needed. So I went into a phone booth. You're too young to probably remember them, but it used to be a steel box and you walked aluminum box and you walked inside, dropped a dime in, and called somebody. Went into a phone booth, which was actually a rocket ship cleverly disguised as a phone booth, dialed in the uh, phone number, which was the launch code, and a gentleman who'd run the ad, he was the regional guy with Holiday Magic Cosmetics, answered, and I began interviewing him because, of course, I was Ben Gay of Brown Gay Food Brokerage Company, skipping the part that the gay in food brokers was my father, not me. <laughs> <laughs> And about two or three minutes deep into my inquisition, he said, Mr. Gay, I'm not the man standing in a phone booth. You can always tell when somebody calls you from a phone booth. I'm not the man standing in a phone booth answering one ads. Where are you? And I told him, he said, you're about two blocks from my office, 1447 West Peachtree Street, Atlanta, Georgia. He said, be standing in front of my desk in 10 minutes or never dial this number again. He slammed down the phone. So my running buddy, later business manager, the greatest salesperson I ever worked with, although we didn't know it yet, Jimmy Rucker pulled around just about that time to go to the next store we were calling on. And I said, quick, 1447 West Peachtree Street. And he said, what's going on? I said, we're going to be rich. <laughs> so we zipped down the two or three blocks. 
ran up. I'm not sure I was willing to wait for the elevator, ran up to suite 300 and walked in out of breath and said, hi, I'm Ben Gay. And I glanced at my watch. I had about a minute to spare. And she said, fine, have a seat. And I turned around. There was this curly-headed guy sitting on the sofa. And I said, hi, my name's Ben Gay. And uh, what's yours? And he did all the Ben Gay jokes, I assume, you know, but about the product and the rub-in and so on. And uh, when he finished, I'm used to hearing him, so I just nodded politely. Uh, when he finished, I said, what's your name? And he said, Zig Ziglar. And I said, your name's Zig Ziglar and you're making fun of Ben Gay? you got to be <laughs> kidding me. And uh, turned out Zig had answered the same ad I did. He was 18 years older, but he hadn't had a big hit yet. He was selling cookware in Columbia, South Carolina. So we both, along with Jimmy Rucker, went into the meeting, listened to Bill Dempsey's presentation. At the end of it, agreed to pay $91.42 to join the uh, business, get a little box of cosmetics. And uh, as we left, Rucker and I were trying to figure out how to cover the check because we didn't have $91.42, but we got it covered. And then we went to the meeting, and this time we paid attention, figured out we really needed $2,500 U.S. dollars to be in the right position. So uh, we sold Jimmy Rucker's car, 57 Chevrolet. He's still mad about that. And uh, all these years later, and uh, the uh, then we started trying to bring people to the meetings and so on. And in the third meeting, I guess, counting the interview, uh, I discovered that we still weren't in the right position. That required another 2500 So we talked a friend into putting a second mortgage on his house and made him a partner. He was never really active in the business, but made him a partner. And now we were what was called general distributors with Holiday Magic. But being young and sharp and witty and all, I didn't bother to learn the sales presentations that they had given us in the very first meeting they gave them to us. And I ignored that because, you know, you just need to have a good handshake, a smile and shine shoes. And uh, about six months in, we hadn't made a penny. Not a penny had even changed hands. Not my mother or my sister bought a tube of lipstick. Probably didn't ask them. I don't know. And went into the meeting one night. And Bill Dempsey, the guy who recruited us, met me at the door. And he said, man, I need to talk to you. And I said, what? He said, you don't have anybody with you. And I said, no. He said, of course not. <clears throat> I don't want you coming to the meetings anymore. Now, keep in mind, I'm making $100 a week gross from my father. You got to adjust all that for inflation, but it wasn't much even then. And uh, he said, I don't, I don't want you coming to the meetings. I said, well, I have to come to the meetings. We're $5,000 in debt. And he said, no, uh, you're depressing people. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you never bring anyone. You're here five nights a week, but you never bring anybody. Because you're here five nights a week, other people think you're active in the business. So when they can't close their people, uh, they raise their hand. You come over to help. You don't know what you're doing. You haven't learned the script. So you blow off their people. And you're no help from the front of the room because you haven't learned the opportunity meeting, which was a 47-minute word-for-word presentation. And he said, so I love you like a brother. Uh, but I, I don't want you coming around. And I said, how do we fix this? And he said, you go home and you learn all those scripts I gave you on the first night, the script to invite the first day we met, the script to invite people to meetings, the opportunity meeting presentation itself, and then the closes after the meeting. There were six of them. If you didn't buy on the first one, we rolled over to the second, third, fourth, and there were six closes. 
And uh, I said, okay, then I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, no, no, I'll see you again after you know what I just told you. So I'd say a week or 10 days later, I called him, went down, stood in front of his desk in that same office, and I did the invitation of the meeting. I did the 47-minute opportunity meeting word for word, and I did the six calls. He said, great. Now, instead of sharing this with me, go share it with other people. And within a night or two, I showed up. We had five buying units with us. Uh, buying, you know, husband and wife is one. Husband by himself, a man by himself is two, so on, but five buying units. Uh, the, the invitation had worked. They didn't trust me to give the meeting from the front of the room. Somebody else did it that night. And then they ran the film and said, turn to the person who brought you here and ask how you can get started in holiday magic cosmetics. Lights came up. I got out my little legal pad, started drawing circles. And uh, in, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, all five had committed to buy four wrote checks for 2500 each. Uh, and the other one needed a few days to get his money together, but it was five for five. And I made more money sitting there off of the commissions of those five. And they had not yet gone to the next level where I made five times as much per person as getting them in at the first level. The uh, I had made as much money in 10 or 15 minutes as I would, made, would have made in a year with my father. And so I was hooked. And finally I launched. Zig had already started off part-time in Atlanta, up in South Carolina. He was already doing pretty well because he, uh, A, was older, had more sales experience, and he, B, learned the scripts. So, skipping over a whole bunch of stuff, a year and a half later, Zig was working for me because I had beaten him and a bunch of other people in a year-long sales contest, and I won the mystery prize. He won a Rolls-Royce. Somebody else won. Whoever came in next won a Lincoln Continental third place or fourth place, actually. Bill Dempsey won a Thunderbird, and I was flown to California to see what the mystery prize was. When I got there, I met with William Penn Patrick, the owner of the company, one of my early mentors, as it turned out. And uh, he said, uh, I, I said, I'm, I'm here to get the mystery prize. I didn't see any car out in front of the building. <laughs> you know, what is it? And he said, well, sit down, son. Uh, he said, you're going to be president of the company. And I said, well, we have a president, Fred Pape. He said, he, he's on the way out. So this is just between you and me. But the first prize was president of the company. I said, Bill, what if some, or Mr. Patrick, I probably said at the time, what if someone had won it that you didn't like? And he said, then I would have changed the prize. That's the reason it was a mystery prize. So I was now on the fast track, on the rocket ride. I was designated president of the company. Uh, went from making $0 to $101,000 in the first six months after I learned the scripts. That's about a million in today's money. And uh, present the company and off and running, which put me in the hot seat because everybody that was anybody in the sales world then was either in Holiday Magic and, and soon are related companies that had the same marketing plan with other products. But uh, they were... Uh, either in the business with us or trying to get in or trying to get hired to do seminars or what have you. People, people talk about legends. You know, I wish I could have met. Well, I could have met them by leaving my office and going to the bathroom. You bump in on the way to the bathroom. I'd bump into J. Douglas Edwards, Dr. Norman Vincent, Peel, uh, Ogmandino, you know, fill in the blank. And then one day, 
uh, William Penn Patrick, and we can talk about this later if you'd like, brought an older gentleman to my door to meet me and uh, or have me meet him. And I got up and went around the table and I said, hi, my name's Ben Gay. What's yours? And Bill interrupted and said, Ben, this is Dr. Napoleon Hill. Well, I didn't know what he looked like. I had his book, but, you know, and time had gone on. He was 84 the day we met. I was 25. And uh, Bill went on to tell me that he had hired or retained Dr. Hill to be my mentor, uh, my friend, my buddy, and my coach on a 100% confidential basis. I could tell him anything I wanted. It would never go any farther than Dr. Hill. And I tested the theory. turned out to be true. So uh, how did it happen? I worked my way into a lot of those situations. Earl Nightingale became the voice. I hired him to be the voice of Holiday Magic. And... Uh, I worked my way into it. In the case of Dr. Hill, he was a gift. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. amazing it's it's almost unbelievable how all of those people kind of intersected with holiday magic and, and i do want to spend some time of course talking about your experience with napoleon hill but before i do I, I i'm sitting here as i'm taking notes and thinking about what you're talking about you shared two stories the the first your kind of first entrepreneurial experience with the lawn mowing business and then you talked about what you were doing with the cosmetics and in both of those you talked about the importance of scripts because of how much money you're able to make. So obviously scripting is something you believe in from a sales standpoint. Talk to us a little bit other than, of course, we just got those two examples of why it was successful for you. But in general, why do you believe scripting is critical in sales versus going off the cuff? Because <laughs> you go broke going off the cuff. <laughs> if, if you've been in selling more than 30 days, you're on a script. So I don't get sucked into debates with salespeople anymore about our scripts, good or bad. If they've been in sales 30 days in a given situation, they tend to say the same thing they said yesterday and the day before and the day before. So the only debate that we should be having is, do they want to work with a script they sort of drifted into out of laziness and slothfulness? Or do they want to work with a script that's been carefully written, crafted, tested, and refined. In the direct mail business, nobody argues about this. You, you write and test and write and test till you finally get a control letter. This is the best you've ever been able to do, and you keep mailing that, and you test other letters against it. And if, you ever, if you're lucky enough to beat the control piece, then you might swap over or start testing, swapping over to the new piece. The Wall Street Journal has a, a letter they've been mailing for I don't know, 45, 50 years, it's some, it starts out something like on a spring day 25 years ago, two people graduated from college. And it goes on to imply that they were in the same class, same time, same everything. One is the chairman of the board uh, today, and the other one is stuck in middle management at the same company. 
And it further implies the difference is the CEO read the Wall Street Journal every day and the other guy didn't. That's their control letter. They've been trying to beat it for 40 or 50 years and have never have been able to beat it. So Mm -hmm. why would they have a secretary just type up some random letter and mail that out? Uh, Because they're not stupid is the reason. So once you test a script, field test it, you know, common sense test it, hone it, get every word out that isn't needed, get the powerful words in and so on, and then field test it, and it works until you find something that works better than that. Why wouldn't you use it? We used to uh, terminate people's distributorships. We sent private detectives into, today we would call them shoppers. We sent private detectives into opportunity meetings. And if you got off script, we terminated your distributorship or suspended it till you got on script. And I was living proof of that. I won the donut contest because my father taught me a little script. He said, knock on the, in the South, you have screen doors. He said, knock on the door and step off to the side where they have to open the door to sort of see who's there. And when they open the door, hand them the uh, Krispy Kreme donuts and say, hi, I've got your Krispy Kreme donuts. Uh, If you want just one dozen, that'll be whatever it was, $3 or something. They would take the donuts and run and get their $3. And I beat everybody senseless in that contest because they were just going, hey, you want some donuts? (laughs) (laughs) And in the lawn business, the little trick was I made the call. And they said, what do you charge? And I said, that's totally up to you. At the the time we're done, you pay us what you think it's worth. Nothing or as much as you want. My kids say, give us $100, you know, whatever you want. Well, they paid us because of that little script two to three times and sometimes more than that, but at least two to three times what I would have ever asked for. So by the time I split the money they paid us with my friend, he had as much or more money. And I had money that I didn't do anything for except inspect the job and uh, and uh, make the sales call. And then when I started, as you know, I give, as you've discovered, I give long answers to short questions. When I started the 800 call center industry in 1976, rather quickly, we were up to 50, 60,000 calls a day incoming for clients. We had 1,500 corporate clients at any given time. And every one of those 50 to 60,000 calls a day was answered with a script. I didn't need 150 operators sitting in the control room winging it. Uh, The client was paying for certain results. We helped them write the script, gave it out to everybody, rehearsed it a few times. And that's verbatim what we said every time. We built the world's largest answering call center order-taking service in the world because of two things. A, I figured out a timeshare and 800 number back when they used to cost $10,000 a month in advance per line plus overtime. Uh, so that was one little breakthrough, a technological breakthrough. And the other one was scripting. If you ran a decent ad and they dialed the 800 number, odds are we were going to get the sale because we had a proven script for every single one of 1,500 corporate clients. I I loved the answer because it did two things. One, it pushed the narrative of our conversation forward and it, and it gave us that answer. So I, I, I want to take a few minutes because you have certainly interacted with some of these most, some of the most successful people in sales ever. I wondered if you could share a couple of experiences and thoughts on, you know, Zig Ziglar and of course, Napoleon Hill and talk about some of the the most important lessons you learned from them. 
Uh, from Zig, I'd learned enthusiasm and a positive attitude. He was one of the most exciting, upbeat, positive people I've ever been around. He was not, contrary to popular belief, a great salesman. Just like Jimmy Rucker and I were partners, he had a partner called Mel, named Mel Lanius. Mel was a stone-cold killer closer. But Zig fed him people over to the closing tables that were ready to go because they just seen Zig do the front of the room meeting. And it was like going to a lounge act in a comedy club. I mean, he had you laughing and while following the script, had you laughing and rolling just because the way he said things. So upbeat, positive enthusiasm, I think I learned primarily from Zig. And he's a, a, he was a good guy, uh, good to the core. Uh, probably picked up some of that, I hope. Uh, uh, with Dr. Hill, uh, I learned, uh, somebody asked me in a meeting not too long ago, what are the three things that Dr. Hill taught you? And I hate questions like that if you don't know they're coming, you know, because <laughs> he taught me 50 things and, and, and to come up with any one of them spontaneous was difficult, but I just trusted my subconscious mind, shut my eyes and out came integrity, focus, action. And because uh, integrity was overriding everything that he said and did when we were together. Uh, focus, I'm sort of, uh, to this day, I'm sort of like the crow when you bring in the sh shiny object. My head turns. <laughs> you know, I, I want to see what that is. And uh, Dr. Hill, I had a big conference table as a desk. I sat in the middle of it across from the entry door. Dr. Hill always saw it to my, sat to my left at the end of the table unobtrusively. He could be there 24 hours a day if he wanted. He was never asked to leave any meeting. He could walk in any office, anywhere in the building, the legal office, anything that interested him. But generally, he sat there and observed. And uh, when uh, I, I would be doing something and something would happen, and I, I'd do the, the crow thing, he'd say, Benjamin, focus, focus. And taught me how to discipline myself. He's not around to say that anymore, so now I have to do that to myself. But focus. Uh, he, he and a, another dear friend, Ray Considine, together one day taught me the lesson to ask myself about 20 times a day, is this the most important thing I could be doing right now? And if it's not, stop and do what is the most important thing you could be doing. And then the third thing from Dr. Hill was action. Uh, he would, he was quick. I, I'm very quick at it now, but I guess I wasn't in the early days because he, I would listen to stuff and meetings be going on and people be bringing in studies and all sorts of things that basically I didn't understand anyway. And, uh, he would, uh, we'd be alone. Never said this in front of other people. It was always Dr. Hill and me. I think if I'd murdered somebody, he would have mentioned that that wasn't a good idea after <laughs> everyone left the meeting. So uh, he, would, uh, he, would, he would sit there in silence for a moment and he'd say, uh, Ben, you have all the information you need. Take action. Yes, no, up, down, sideways. Take action. And uh, so that was terribly important from him. And then they were old. You know, I was 25. He was 84. So he was old enough to be my grandfather. Uh, there was a lot of, I was, because I had sat at all those tables at East Lake Country Club listening to the head of this and the CEO of this and so on, I had learned to listen and appreciate the wisdom of people who'd been down the, the trail before. If you and I were going to count, uh, climb Mount Everest today, 
the first thing I would suggest we do is hire a Sherpa to guide us up the mountain. Being in, having the money to pay the forty, fifty thousand dollars, whatever it is, to get a permit proves you've been reasonably successful, or you're loose with your money, one or the other, and and uh, motivated. You're probably motivated. But of the 300, 350 dead bodies on the side of Mount Everest, very few of them had Sherpas. They had the forty, fifty thousand dollars, and they were enthusiastic, and they went to, they marched up the hill to their deaths. The Sherpas, there are Sherpas who have been, you know, we get headlines, so and so scaled Mount Everest. In the background, you see the guy with the fuzzy hat. It's probably his twelfth, twelfth hundredth summit of of Mount Everest. Get one of those. And so I was blessed between, and I could go on and on with names, but ones people really know, J. Douglas Edwards, Earl Nightingale, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, Dr. Robert Schuller, uh, Napoleon Hill, of course. Uh, I was blessed with Sherpas. It wasn't because I was special. I, j- I happened to work my way into a seat that they all wanted to be around. Not me necessarily, but whoever had that seat would have had access to all those people. And I made the most of it. I had learned at East Lake Country Club to shut up and listen. 